This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Coberline. When it's time to upgrade our computer or phone, what are we supposed to do with the old stuff? Not what you might expect. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Callie Babbitt, an assistant professor of environmental science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. She's going to share the most sustainable ways to dispose of electronic waste. So I understand you do research in environmental impact? Yes, that's right. Um, Part of our research in sustainability is to understand how products impact the environment, but also their economic and social impact as well. Yeah, I was reading a, a paper of yours. I think they were summarizing it as one of the problems we have is that we don't throw stuff away. I don't know if it's that we don't throw stuff away. I think it's that we have too much stuff to start with. In some sense, it seems counterintuitive. If I have an old piece of electronic and I still keep it, it feels like I'm doing good because I'm not adding it to the landfill? It's actually really interesting because electronics are a great example of sustainability. They have tons of environmental issues all across our life cycle. You know, the materials that are extracted when they're made, the production processes, you know, they consume a lot of electricity when they're Mm -hmm. plugged in. And then trying to recycle them is a really challenging issue. So when you own an electronic and you continue to use it, that's great. But if you buy a replacement and you continue to use the old one and the new one, and now you've doubled your energy use in the household. And so the best bet is to either continue using the old one or as soon as you replace it, get rid of it through a, a, a certified recycler. Don't hang on to it then. Right. And it, it's actually interesting because we've learned that about two thirds of all small electronics actually are stored in people's attics and basements and closets and dresser drawers because a lot of folks don't know what to do with them. They don't understand that's a problem. It, it reminds me of my father who has yeah. every computer that he's had since I think 1990. Right. Is still in his basement. That's probably, there's probably a market for them on eBay at this point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You go, you shift from from kind of junk to vintage right. at some point. Well, one thing is that these electronic products have a really short, useful lifespan. I mean, no one wants an old, dingy, white, beige monitor <laughs> or something like that. So as soon as you're done using it, if you can go ahead and, and recycle it or take it somewhere will it, where it will be reused, someone else can still get value out of it before it becomes totally obsolete. You can't just dump it out in the trash. Or you're not supposed to just dump it out in the That's trash. That's right. Not allowed in New York State especially. You have to kind of track down where the recycling place might be. And I think computer recycling is different from traditional recycling. You can't just take it to an aluminum place and say, deal with it. Right. Although it has gotten a lot easier in the last few years because New York State has passed regulation that requires manufacturers to take the products that they sell back at the end of life. And so what that means is that, say, every Best Buy now has the ability to take back old cell phones or things that you Mm might have purchased there at no cost to the consumer. And it's also a challenge not, you know, consumers don't know where to take the products, but they're also worried about their data. You know, is my personal information going to be secure? And so a lot of times the solution to that is they take a hammer to their old phone or hard drive, and that's (laughs) not an idea ideal solution because it makes it harder to recycle. So if you're working with a trusted e-waste recycler, then they actually follow very high levels of data removal to erase any personal data that's on the product. 
So you can count on them being very attuned to that. They work with a lot of medical clients who have right. confidential medical data, et cetera. You get these stories sometimes you'll see in the news where you find, you know, some place far away that's usually impoverished and you see these piles of electronic materials and kids are playing around them scavenging or something and you think mm-hmm. is that really making a difference if I just give it to an electronics place that then dumps it? Or right. That- I mean it's actually a really interesting relationship we have with electronics because we paid a lot for them when they first came out. Right. And so when it actually comes to the time when they reach their end of life we still feel like there's a lot of value there but there's really not. I mean right. electronics have gold and silver and copper and some even rare earth elements but they're not that valuable. They have very small concentrations of those materials. So when you recycle them just one at a time, you don't get a lot out. So it takes thousands and thousands of them for it to be economical. And there are some really high efficient ways of doing that. For example, shredding up the old electronic and then smelting it down at high temperatures to to melt out all the materials. But that also takes a lot of um, transportation and labor costs. And so some unscrupulous businesses have decided that it's cheaper to send it to developing countries where you get really poor old techniques of you know like basically medieval techniques of getting gold out of out <laughs> heat of everything materials. up and just extract heat what you everything can. up out of a, over a really harsh acid and extract what you can so you get really low efficiency but the labor costs are so low they still yeah. make a profit unfortunately and it causes huge environmental damage and this used to be really a concern for some areas in China but it's really growing now um, South America Mm -hmm. Uh, We have issues in India, Russia, Africa, and even there are some places in the United States where recyclers have just given up and abandoned their old piles of electronics with no idea what to do with them. Right. So So these piles of things. There are these horror stories, but that's why in the last few years, uh, regulators have introduced new standards and now there are new policies. So you can actually go online to say R2 which is a uh, certification program and search with your zip code to find a recycler who's been audited and and is compliant. And the different states have different regulations. I mean, in New York State, they have the mandatory take back, I guess, if you'd call it. But is that getting more common? Are there a lot of states that do that? Or is it... It it is getting a lot more common. I think we're somewhere between 30 and 40 states right now that have some sort of law on the books about electronic waste. But one of the problems is that we don't have a comprehensive federal standard. It's, you know, we buy a lot of things online. That's right. What do I do? All over the place. I bought it from California. I can't. Do I ship it back to California? Right. Exactly. It's really confusing for the consumer. So eventually it would be wonderful if we could see that this is is more unified. But for now, in New York, at least, we do have a, a comprehensive law. Law. And now it's illegal to landfill these products. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do, don't put it in your in your trash can. You know there are a lot of easy ways of, of recycling it. And one of the things that's interesting to me now is that you know we've run into all these problems with electronics, but the next question is what about other material waste streams? So lithium ion batteries, or right. solar cells, or old wind turbines. So there's all kind of new products and, and systems that are coming out, and we haven't thought a bit about how to recycle them. Right. So. 
I think that's, that's really the that's next interesting because we think of green technology and and windmills and stuff. It's it, this is going to be so great, right. and yet there's still copper and and the plastics and all of the different materials that are using. And yeah, you know, we don't think of it as downstream. We don't think of what we deal with it. I think right. Well, part that, of that's with our and economy. I think that's actually the key issue in sustainability that we try to look at is what are the ripple effects of introducing a new technology. So mm-hmm. with energy, for example, um, one of the issues is that to make all of these new products, solar cells and wind turbines and electric vehicle motors, it actually requires minerals that are, are very, very scarce and right. that we're in short supply of, right, critical right. metals and, and different materials. And then there's the challenge that many of these we don't mine in the United States. Right. And so we're reliant on imports from other countries. China, Argentina, places like that. Right. Yeah. So there's all kinds of interesting issues because, you know, if we could develop a better recycling system, we could certainly recover those materials and reduce impacts and mm-hmm. ensure a domestic supply. But it's very hard to do cost effectively. There's also, I think, one of the trends you see is that the devices are becoming more multi-use. The, the idea that we used to have, you know, a camcorder and a camera and a phone and now those are all in your cell phone. And right. so they're all together now. Right. And one of the elements of the the research we're doing is actually to try to use um, models and, and methods that ecologists use. And so an ecologist might look at an ecosystem and then analyze the diversity. We're looking at the product ecosystem of electronics in people's houses and then understanding the diversity of that mix. So it's kind and of like t- treating them as living things that the, the exactly. cell phone Exactly. And it's system. a little bit weird, you know. <laughs> The, the computer doesn't eat the laptop like the hawk might eat the mouse. But there are some good there are some good overlap. What we actually learned is that over the last twenty years, uh, the diversity of our products in our houses has really increased. But what's interesting is that now we see a lot of what we call redundancy. So in an right. ecological community, that might be that a lot of the organisms eat the same food. Right. Uh, in the product community, it means that now of the, say, 16 products in your home, which is about the average for the United States, right. that all of them record or playback video in some capacity. Right. So, so the, the photograph niche, as it right. were, in an environmental sense would be, it can right. be your phone, it can be your tablet, and all right. Other things. And so a real question for us now is what will it take consumers to adopt a fewer amount of really multifunctional products to displace all of those redundant products that they have sitting around both in use and in their basements? Do you think our habits, we like to have piles of paper and I mean, it's the standard faculty office where there's piles of everything. And do you think we'll just collect more because of that or? Yeah, it's definitely hard to say. I mean, I see so some trends in willingness to dematerialize, so to speak, as Mm -hmm. you go across generations. Many of the students that we've surveyed certainly own a lot fewer products than many of the uh, family households. But that's also... a lot of them, they use like tablets instead of taking notes. So they're all taking them on these little uh, laptops and stuff. But it also could be income and and things like that as well. So there's a lot of factors at play. But yeah, it certainly could be an opportunity. You know, we actually 
actually think about that like the invasive species of mm-hmm. a of a ecosystem. So if the these tablets come in and really disrupt <laughs> the, iPhones the market, are coming, watch out. <laughs> right. Then maybe in an ecosystem that's a horrible thing to happen. But in a product system, it might actually be good. So it's kind of a, a new way of looking at so it. So you kind of want to reduce, I guess, techno diversity, <laughs> I guess, instead, instead of biodiversity. We want to have kind of less organisms doing right. more things. Right. There's a lot of different ways that we can that can get at the problem. I mean, we can also make all of our products much more energy efficient, mm-hmm. or we can use them longer. But that takes a real concerted effort to do. In some cases, it might actually be easier to think about designing products to feed, you know, consumers need to always have the next newest thing, right. but designing them in a way that replaces some of the extra products. Or if we build them to make them easier to recycle, right. for example. And that's a huge opportunity. And, and I think people have this general sort of fear of re- repairing their own products and, mm-hmm. and extending their life. We've certainly, the repair culture in the United States has, has gone away, sort of the right. way of Radio Shack, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there is a whole group of people that are really trying to get people back to, you know, cracking open your own product. Right. The whole learning how it works type of thing. And then repairing it. Right. And so I have a, a colleague uh, who runs the company iFixit and their their site iFixit.com has some really cool tools where mm-hmm. they're actually doing crowdsourced step-by-step user manuals yeah. to learn how to take apart a product and and replace the components so that you can continue to use it. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Exactly. And it's fun too. I mean, I think that's a big part of it. A lot of times we're sort of guilted into doing the environmental thing. Um, you mm-hmm. know, don't use water bottles. Don't use disposable paper. We're always killing cups, the planet. Right? It's all you know, our fault. It's always this guilt trip. But there's a lot of ways you can actually have fun with a greener uh, sort of attitude. It is always satisfying when you can kind of fix that thing. It's like, right. well, I saved myself right. 100 bucks by doing that. Especially if when you put it back together, all the screws go back in place. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's exactly it. You're listening to One Universe at a Time. I'm your host, Brian Koberlein. We've been talking with Dr. Callie Babbitt, Assistant Professor of Environmental Science at the Rochester Institute of Technology, about electronic waste. In the second half of our show, I'm going to trade places with Dr. Babbitt. She'll ask the questions and I'll answer. Today, she wants to know where solar energy comes from and when it will run out. As a sustainability practitioner, I'm really interested in solar energy. Okay. But where does the energy come from? Uh, it's nuclear power. Tell me about that. <laughs> nuclear power, what does that mean? Nuclear waste? When you talk about things like solar power, um, you're getting it from sunlight. And so we have these photovoltaic cells. Basically, they are materials that when sunlight hits them, electrons get pushed out where they can move in a conductor, and that creates a voltage. And the voltage is what you have in your battery and any power source. You've got some potential difference of voltage to do this. And so what you're doing is you're using the energy from the light, the energy from the photons, to create a voltage that you can then use to power whatever you want. How? Where does the light come from? I mean, you look at the sun, yep. you see light. Yep. Where? What is its journey? How does it get from the sun to our solar panel? It actually starts in the core of the sun through nuclear fusion. So what happens is because the sun is so massive, its interior is incredibly dense and incredibly hot. And it's dense enough and hot enough that hydrogen, for example, will smack into each other hard enough to fuse. 
And so through a kind of process, you get hydrogen is fused into helium. And from Einstein's relativity, energy is mass times the speed of light squared e equals mc squared. The mass of, say, four hydrogen atoms is actually greater than the mass of one helium atom. And the difference in the two masses is released as energy, and it's released as light. And so by fusing hydrogen, the light produces the light that we want to have. When it starts, it doesn't happen. It doesn't reach us really quickly. It actually takes 20, 30, 50,000 years to go from the core out to the surface of the sun. So the light that we see coming from the sun only took eight minutes to reach us from the sun's surface, but it took tens of thousands of years to make it out of the sun. Wow. <laughs> Efficiency-wise, not so good. You know, I mean, the, the sun is, is producing all of this energy. We only use a tiny fraction of it, but it'll go for another five billion years. So wow. it's, you know, future generations So problems. some longevity. A little longevity <laughs> there, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. So how did you calculate eight minutes? Well, eight minutes comes from the distance of the sun to the Earth. So it's uh, about 150,000 kilometers, or it's about 93 million miles, 150 million kilometers. The speed of light is 300,000 meters per second. So from the time it takes this, from the surface of the sun to Earth is about eight minutes and 23 seconds or something like that. How can we be so precise? How do you know those numbers? We know the distance to the sun because we can measure it relative to the planets and things like that. So we know this, the distance of the sun actually very well. And we know the speed of light very well. So that part of it's pretty straightforward. Knowing the fusion is actually kind of an interesting process because part of it we know from the types of neutrinos. There's particles that are neutrinos that come off, and they're produced by the fusion. So by looking at the level of neutrinos, we can see the type of fusion that occurs. We can also do things like observe the surface of the sun, and it oscillates in kind of sound waves. So it, it, it's like sound through a material, and it's called helioseismology. It's the sound of the sun. By studying that, we can actually determine what the density of the sun is, what its pressure is, and all of these different things. So we know a lot, actually, about what the interior of the sun is. Sound of the sun sounds like it should be a rock band title. Yeah. <laughs> but that's interesting. So does the amount of sunlight that we get vary over time? Um, well, if there's variability in activity. I don't know that there's um, you know massive variability in terms of the kind of average energy that comes out. One of the things we do know is that over millions and billions of years, the sun is gradually getting hotter. So as a star ages, it actually, as it's fusing hydrogen into helium, it's actually getting more dense. And as it gets more dense, it heats up. And so you can actually look over geologic scales. You know, the temperature of the sun is increasing gradually over time. Will there be a peak in terms of that increase or will it increase indefinitely? Well, it'll go for about 5 billion more years. Uh, what happens is there, is there is a cycle that's called the PP chain, but it's, it produces hydrogen to helium. And then helium can burn with uh, carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. It's called the CNO cycle. Uh, that actually burns hotter, so that actually is, is faster and, and kind of produces more heat. What happens is that as you burn more hydrogen, you have less available hydrogen to burn. And so there will come a point where the sun can't fuse helium enough to keep it balanced against gravity. And mm -hmm. so eventually, after about 5 billion years, the sun will become a red giant. It'll swell up. Uh, at that point, we either move or die. 
So so we either have to relocate or... or How far would we have to move? Well, we'd have to probably go to another sun eventually. I wow. Mean, eventually, the sun, our sun will go as a red dwarf, uh, red giant, sorry, and then it will become what's called a white dwarf. So it will use up all of its fuel. It will collapse down to, you know, just a cold, dead star. And at that point, we either, we go elsewhere. We, we don't have the, the sun for our source of power. That's fascinating. Now, you said variability in terms of the fusion. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know if there's a, a whole lot of variability in the fusion. There may be some little bits of cycles. Most of it, actually, that affects us are things like solar flares. What's a solar flare? Solar, a solar flare is where you will get some of the material near the surface uh, flare out. There's things that are solar flares. There are things that are called coronal mass ejections, where that's actually uh, material can be thrown out towards the Earth. Getting back to the idea of electronics, that's one of the things that is of risk. If you, if you had one of these coronal mass ejections that hit the Earth, you could actually get massive amounts of currents and it could short-circuit things and that would be bad. Well, how likely is it that something like that might actually happen? There's uh, Historically, there was something called the Carrington event and this was a large, very large coronal mass ejection or solar flare. And we had telegraph at the time and the amount of electrical activity was so strong that they actually shut down the power of the telegraphs and they could could use the telegraph just from the induced current due to the solar flare activity. It's kind of used now that if, if one of those happened now that we you know we'd all go back to the Bronze Age or something. But it's not necessarily likely, and we know how to defend about it in, in some levels. We can we can take steps to prevent it from being serious. Who are like the the rock stars in terms of the scientists who've made history in our knowledge of the sun and solar energy? There's a woman who's, I don't remember her first name, last name was Maunder, who looked at sunspots. There's actually a, a period known as the Maunder Minimum in which the sunspot activity basically dropped to almost nothing. And you can look at this activity and it's one of the big times in which you mm-hmm. could see that large variability in sunspots uh, actually occurred. And so she was one of the people that, that first demonstrated that large variabilities in terms of the sun's activity could actually happen. Now, is that something that is observed directly or requires some sort of specialized observation equipment to do? Well, sunspots, we can look if you have telescopes. You can actually take a telescope and project the image of the sun on a screen. You never want to look at the sun in a telescope directly, ever in a telescope. And so, (laughs) yeah, it's not something you do. But you can project an image of the sun and you can count how many sunspots. And the early studies of the sun were actually just that. Count the number of sunspots that you see this month and next month and the next month. And we would get variations of the number of sunspots that we observe. And so this was the, kind of the first studies, you know, in the, the 17, 1600s onward, in which we could see that the sun wasn't just a steady, constantly shining ball, that it had variability to it, and sunspots were the first indication of that. So not to raise a controversial question, but as a sustainability person, we often get the, the comment that solar variability is what drives climate change. Yes. How do you respond to that? Solar activity does affect weather, and so solar activity can affect climate. There is a a period called the uh, Little Ice Age in which you can look at sunspot activity versus temperature. 
However, the idea of global climate change, global warming, is not driven purely by the sun. It, 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 there is lots of evidence to say that there's human activity there. But it does have a factor. There is there is actually a role that the sunlight plays. What are other processes on Earth or things that are affected by the solar phenomenon that you've been talking about? One of them is being able to look at things like carbon dating and radiometric dating and you can find spikes in the isotopes due to solar activity. And so there's been evidence of, in this period, for example, if you look in uh, logs, you can look at the uh, amount of radiometric activity there. You know, you can see the spikes and you can say, oh, that's when there was a large solar flare, or this is another time. And so used in terms of dating things, used in terms of the amount of, of geological activity that we have there, is, is kind of an interesting thing. And, and we, we can date that variability even further back than just counting sunspots. Anything else that you think that there are misconceptions about the sun or, or these processes? that you think people should understand better? Um, I think a lot of the things is that when people look at sunlight, they think of it's kind of free energy, you know, and... Th- I do have to say, I say, <laughs> I say that in class sometimes. It's, it's free energy. And in some sense it is. I mean, the sun's going to burn its energy whether we use it or not. At the same time, it does have an original source. You know, the, the advantage of the sun is that it's constantly producing energy, that we have this, this resource to it. One of the curious facts I like to bring up is that fundamentally everything on Earth is nuclear-powered because it's driven by the nuclear activity in the sun or it's heat from geothermal, which is also driven by nuclear decay. And so just making it sunlight doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only way we can do it. Are all the big mysteries solved? Or are there still some big unanswered questions that, that people are trying to resolve? There's a lot of un- unanswered questions. One of the big ones is trying to predict solar activity. It's, it's kind of like trying to predict earthquakes. You know, we can observe them after the fact, but trying to predict when we're going to have a large solar flare or when we're going to have a coronal mass ejection is extremely difficult. And when we talk about things like, you know, Elon Musk is going to go to Mars and and there's all these space station travels, we're going to go out and mine asteroids. Solar flares are much more dangerous when you're outside of the atmosphere and we need to be able to protect ourselves. And that's, that's a challenge we just don't have yet. We can't yet predict when they're going to happen. We've been talking with Dr. Callie Babbitt, an assistant professor of environmental science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Our program is produced at RIT with support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Koberlein. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time.